0: on in the book of James, and James is an incredibly practical book. Um, James wants us to know what it looks like to live out our Christian faith. One thing that we have said is uh, real faith is visible faith, and so James wants us to know what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like to live as a Christian? And so he's been describing how it is that we ought to live, and today in chapter 4 he's really going to describe the normal Christian life. And that's what I want us to see is what we're looking at today is what ought to characterize us as believers. And so the main point that I'm wanting us to see, that I believe James is wanting us to see, is that God, is that God's grace produces humility in the Christian's life that we would joyfully submit to his rule. So that's what I want us to see, is that God gives us grace, that grace transforms us, that we would joyfully and willingly submit to his rule. And so what I'd like to do is invite you to stand, and we're going to read chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. One thing we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because God's word comes, inspired by the Spirit, for the purpose of equipping, for the purpose of training us in righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 7 do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, that your spirit would work within our hearts. Lord, I pray that that through your word today, that you would draw us near to you. God, grow us in our understanding of what it is to be a believer, or what it is to be saved, what it is to be a Christian, one who has been saved and forgiven. May we understand the Christian life today, and that we live willing and joyful submission to you as our King, as our Father. Because you, God, you are the creator of all things. And you have sent your Son to die on a cross that we would be saved and made citizens of your kingdom. Lord, help us to behold your glory today. Help us to grow in our desire for holiness. May May we despise our sin more because of what we have seen in your word today. Lord, we we thank you for this word. Equip us and teach us now. In your name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Uh, Before we jump in, I want to make sure we understand how did we get to this part in James chapter 4. So I just want to back up a little bit and remind us of what has come prior. At the end of chapter 3, James talked to us about worldly wisdom and he talked about heavenly wisdom. And worldly wisdom is characterized, what he says is, by jealousy and selfish ambition. And he says it's selfishly fighting for things that we want. Things that we think we ought to have. And if we don't get it, we will fight over it. And James says when we act that way, there's disorder and every vile practice. And in chapter 3 verse 15, he says this. He says, worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So this is a wisdom that, that characterizes all that Satan does, meaning it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic, it's living in rebellion to God. And so what happens when we as Christians begin to practice worldly wisdom? What happens when we begin to live this way? Well, chapter 4 happens. And If you remember, last week we we're in chapter 4, and James says that the church has begun to fight with one another. And James made sure, though, that we understood why are we fighting? He says, it's not because of other people, and it's not because of circumstances. We fight because of sinful desires with our own heart. What is happening is the church, rather than using godly wisdom, is using this worldly wisdom. They're they're saying that they're Christians, but in all of their actions, they're denying their faith. And so what's the solution? Well, of course, the solution if we're operating with worldly wisdom is to begin living and practicing heavenly wisdom. And in chapter 3, verse 17, this is what James says about heavenly wisdom. He says, wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then notice what he says in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he's talking about when we use godly wisdom, we love one another. Rather than adding fuel to the fire, we we bring peace, and we bring gentleness. We think of others more than we think of ourselves. And and really, James is calling us to be, what he says in verse 18, these peacemakers. But what is a peacemaker? Who is a peacemaker? Ultimately, we, we need to see that Jesus... Is the one true peacemaker God sends Jesus from heaven to earth that he would come and live a perfect life and one day die on a cross so that we who are sinful and what the Bible says are our enemies of God were in rebellion against God and thus his wrath is against us Christ comes so that at the cross he would stand in your place and in my place and he would absorb God's wrath he would he would take the wrath that you and I deserve so that by faith in him, we could be forgiven, we would receive the righteousness of God, and we would go from enemies of God to friends of God. His wrath against us would be, would have been absorbed in Christ so that now we would have peace with God. So this is who Christ, this is what Christ has come, this is the gospel, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we love. And so when James is saying that this peacemaker is one who brings about this harvest of righteousness, and he's calling us to live that way, he's really calling us to live like Christ. He's calling us to have the mind of Christ. So then, how is it that, that as we, how is it that we we become more like Christ? How is it that we become more like this peacemaker? How is it that rather than practicing worldly wisdom, we practice this godly wisdom, this heavenly wisdom, Well, if you remember, so we're preaching through James chapter 4, and in chapter 4, verse 6, this is where we ended last week, we read, but God gives more grace. So how is it that we become more like Christ? How is it that we become this peacemaker? Is it because of our own efforts? Is it because we're going to try really hard? Ultimately, it's because God gives grace. And this is really the hope that we have for, for our marriages, For our parenting for our friendships for every relationship that we have is that God gives more grace the solution to our anger to our frustration to impatience to lust is what God gives what more God gives more grace the the answer to how are we not going to fight with one another and if we do have a fight with one another what's the solution to it God gives more grace That's that's what the entire Christian life is built upon, that God gives grace. And so so James wants us, and just so you know, I'm probably going to say Paul like 19 times a day instead of James, because Paul wrote like half the New Testament. So I was like, anyways, just so you know. I mean James every time, but I probably say Paul like half of it. Um, So how does God's grace work in us, though, that we actually love one another? How does God's grace work in us that we're going to be these peacemakers that rather than fighting, we're going to desire this godly wisdom and we're going to put the needs of one another before our own? Well, when we're in chapter 4, verse 6, we see that God gives grace to the humble. So it says God gives more grace, and then we read, therefore it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So God gives grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he gives us grace that we continue to humble ourselves. So God's grace produces this humility. And as we experience this grace, we desire this humility. So what does it look like then to experience this grace and to pursue humility? What what does that mean? look like? How does that help us to trust in God, to depend upon God, to practice this heavenly wisdom rather than worldly wisdom? And so that's what we're looking at today. That's what James wants us to see, and it's the normal Christian life. Like, I think oftentimes we think of Christianity kind of as this tiered level, like, you know, entry level. We, we operate this way, and as we grow, we we begin doing even more spiritual things. And that's kind of the exact opposite of really the way the Bible presents it. What it shows us is that God gives us grace, and if anything, as we grow in that grace, we just grow deeper in our knowledge and love of that grace. And so this is not looking at, this is what certain Christians do, and then hopefully we all get to that point. What he is describing is the normal Christian life. What God's grace, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then James is saying, this is what God is doing in you. This is what his grace is doing in your life. And so if you've ever wondered, man, I wonder what to pray for. I'm not sure what to pray for. If you've ever been there, you can pray this passage because this is exactly what God's grace is doing in your life. And so verse 7, what is it that God's grace begins to do? We read, submit yourselves therefore to God. We willingly submit to God for his glory. It's the very first thing God's grace does in our heart. Because all sin stems from rejecting the very rule of God. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we see it very clearly. God made Adam and Eve in the garden. They're called to worship him. They're told, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? We'll do what we want. We'll eat from the tree. We don't have to obey you. We reject your authority And we exalt our independence, our authority. In Leviticus chapter 10, I'm working my way through the Pentateuch right now. In Leviticus chapter 10, so I was here not too long ago, we read about Aaron's sons. Aaron has two sons. He's the high priest. His sons' names are Nadab and Abihu. No, those are probably not making the top list of kids' names this year. Uh, And they're killed with fire from heaven, because in Leviticus 1 through 9, God talks about how it is that we come into his presence, how it is that through these sacrifices that we come into the very presence of God, ultimately all pointing to the, to the sacrifice of Christ. But Nadab and Abihu say, well, you know what? We'll come into God's presence however it is we want to. And so they come in offering fire In a way that God has not commanded. And so God strikes them down at that moment. But what they were saying is. We don't need to obey you God. We have our own authority. We'll make up our own rules. Look, Every time we sin. We're rejecting the rule of God. We're rebelling against his authority. And this is the very culture. That we live in. If you think about it. Our culture is looking at every way. That it can remove God from society. Um. Culture says don't talk about God at school, don't talk about God at work, in politics, science, anywhere. Why? Because sin rejects the authority of God. This is what's true in our own hearts, and this is what we see in society at large, because within this world, characterized by sin, we do not want to submit to the one true God and we create ways. Remember, we're in Romans a couple of weeks ago, and Romans at the very end of chapter 1, we invent ways to do evil. We create ways to rebel against his authority. So what does James mean when we talk about submission? Because there's wrong ways that we can think about submission, and one wrong way would be is we do not submit to God as an army submits to a superior force. Just think about that. Many military people here, I think we can all picture that quite easily. Um, When that happens, submission is only because resistance is futile. And thus, for the duration of the war, you stand idly by as a prisoner. In that sense, submission is purely based upon survival, and it leads to passivity. This is not what James is talking about. James, when he speaks about submission, we ought to think more like enlistment. One commentator said this, and I thought it was really good. We willingly take up allegiance to a great superior in order to engage in the fight under his banner. Now think about that. When you have that idea of submission then it leads not to passivity but to activity. When a Christian submits to all that God does, it means we are intent on revealing and advancing the rule of God in our actions, in our thoughts, in everything we do. Now now think about it, does that not make sense of what we read elsewhere in scripture? Uh, Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we are a city on a hill, a a city, um, what does he say, I'm blanking on it, we are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden meaning that we're to be this light shining forth for the very glory of God. Everything that we do is meant to point back to the rule of God. Or think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says that as Christians, we are ambassadors to Christ. So we go out in this world representing who? The very rule of our God. And so when we think about submission, this isn't some, some passive activity that leads us to idleness, but it governs, it directs, it informs everything that we do. In fact, it spurs us on in our Christian life that as we walk as Christians, as we go through each day, it's all about how do we point people back to the glory of God? How do our lives direct back to the rule of God? And so what does that look like? What does that look like if we're going to submit to God so that people will see the we desire God's rule to go forth. Well, um, that's what Paul, be- or, see, that's what Paul, it's James, whoever, what the author is calling us to as we make our way into verses 7 through 9. And he's going to talk about how we fervently pursue a life of holiness. Now, if you've been here for a while, the way we define holiness means being devoted to God. God is ultimately holy because he is perfectly devoted to himself. And as Christians, when we are saved, we go from being devoted to ourselves and our sinfulness to that we would be devoted to God. So what does that look like? So we're submitting to God. We desire that everything that we do would point back to his rule. And thus, we're, we're fervently pursuing this life of holiness, being devoted to him. And so Paul's now going to, James is going to walk through that. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a lot harder than it looks. Right, Chris? It's hard. James guy comes out of nowhere um we cultivate fellowship with God look at verse seven the second half it says resist the devil and he will flee from you I just want you to think about that do you know that promise right there resist the devil and he will flee as Christians we've been freed from the power of Satan In fact, we read about this elsewhere in 1 Peter chapter 5. Think about how Peter describes this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, now think about how he describes Satan here. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. So get the picture, a roaring lion looking for someone to kill, looking for someone to devour. And Peter says, resist him. And here in James, he says, Resist the devil. Resist the roaring lion. And what happens? He flees. He flees. Why? It's not because he's scared of you and I, but because of the very presence of God who dwells within us. Satan cannot breach the walls of the very kingdom of God. Let us know that. And so James is bringing us to this truth saying, Resist the devil and he will flee he has no power over you you've been freed from him because of the cross of jesus and so so how do we resist the devil what does that look like well look at verse 8 draw near to god and he'll draw near to you we're meant to see these these two verses just next to one another you resist the devil he will flee we draw near to god and he draws near to us we're either moving towards god or we're moving towards Satan. There's no neutral ground. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here, I talked about this laundry basket. Remember, we're talking about sinful desires. And, and I said, I have a desire that the clothes in the laundry basket would go from the laundry basket into wherever they're supposed to go, magically, right? That, that is a desire. And I said, that desire is morally neutral. I mean, it's not wrong. It's not right. It's, it's just a desire, desire for clothes to be where they're supposed to be. But what I do with that desire is anything but neutral. Does that make sense? So there's no neutral ground in our heart. So there might be this desire for clothes to get put up or or whatever it is. But what do we do with that desire? Will we resist Satan and draw near to God? Or will we resist God and draw near to Satan? And how we pursue that desire. And most importantly, when that desire does not get met, you'll see exactly who you're drawing near to. Does that make sense? So here, James is calling us to draw near to God. And he draws near to you. And I think a, a beautiful picture of that is the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You remember Luke 15? So you got, you got the prodigal son who's rejected the father, rejected the authority of God, or his father, and he, and he runs off and he lives with the pigs, and he's sitting there and he's going, man, my, my father's slaves have it better than me. I'll, I'll go back to him. And so he, he makes his way back to the father. And while he's still a far way off, the father sees him. And what does he do? He runs to him. And it's this picture of as we draw near to the father. The father loves to draw near to us. And this is the promise that we have. We resist the devil. Draw near to God. So... So how do we do that? How do we resist Satan? How do we draw near to God? I think what we, uh, James is just walking us through this passage. Look at verse 8. We practice regular repentance. Verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking about the hands. He's looking at the things that we do, the outward things. He's talking about the heart, the inward things. So he's looking at our actions, in and our, and our motives, our thoughts. And this point is, if we're going to draw near to God, we must examine our lives, our hearts, and our actions. We, we need to see what sinful desires that we have. We need to ask, where have I been operating out of worldly desires rather than heavenly desires, godly desires? Now, now you could say, "Well, well, how do I know? Where do I go to figure that out? Well, James has been helping us understand what the Christian life looks like all throughout the book. So you could go back to like chapter 2, where he talked about showing mercy to those who are in need. And so we could ask ourselves, well, do I show mercy to those who are hurting? Do I help those who are in need? How do I help those who are hurting around me? We could look at chapter 3, where James talks about the power of the tongue and say, am I building people up or am I tearing them down with my words? We could look at chapter 4, earlier than what we're in today, and am I fighting with other people? Am I quarreling with people? Or even in chapter 4, he also points out, what is the quality of our prayer life? Am I praying to God? Am I not praying to God? How am I praying to God? As As if he's my divine butler? Remember we looked at that last week. He just gives me whatever it is I want. Let me ask you, when is the last time you examined your heart? and your hands. Meaning, when is the last time you examined your thoughts, your desire, your actions? When's the last time you just looked at your day and said, what did I do today? Was there areas that I rebelled against God's rule? Were there areas that I didn't rebel against God's rule? And one thing we've said as Christians many times is that we have been freed from from the power of sin. And we see that. Resist the Satan and he will flee from you. So we've been, we've been freed from the power. But we're not free from the presence of sin yet. In this life. Until Christ returns. We still wrestle against the effects of sin. Now we've been given the spirit. We're freed from it. We're able to walk victoriously in Christ. But yet there's a battle that wages on. As we live here on earth, we'll continue to battle against sin. And in fact, the difficult thing about sin is often it's blinding. So we don't always see it, which is one reason we need one another. We need one another for encouragement, for accountability. Ben came up here earlier and talked about table groups. One of the very purposes of table groups, of Christians coming together, is for the purpose of encouragement. Encouragement purpose of helping one another to lock arms with one another that we would collectively live in submission to God not rebelling against his authority so I encourage you if you're not a part of table group talk to Ben see learn more about what that looks like but let me ask you what do you need to confess to God today I'm not asking if because I don't I don't think that's a good question I think the question is, what do we need to confess to God today? Is there anger? Is there lust? Impatience? Slander? Idolatry? Just just think through. When's the last time I've really just examined my life? Where are there areas that are resisting God's rule? Because remember, if we fail to confess... We're rebelling against God, and thus we're drawing near to the devil. But it's through this confession, we're we're announcing our allegiance to God. We're announcing that He's our Savior, our Redeemer. We're shouting with joy that He's the one who has saved us, given us forgiveness of sins, adopted us into His family, and now we're seeking and desiring to live in a way that honors Him. Now, maybe there's really simple things, and I say simple, not as they're not important, but they're easy to, to, to spot within our life. Things like maybe just visiting certain websites we need to stop doing, going to certain stores, hanging out with particular people, watching certain TV shows, speaking in certain ways, watching, uh, oh, we said TV shows stuff, and then I think there's There's deeper issues, ones that are often harder, ones that are often more woven in into our heart, things like anger, things like frustration, lust, pornography. Those are often more difficult to sometimes spot, more difficult to sometimes turn from. But the very first step that that James gives us is, are we cleansing our hands, are we purifying our hearts? This is the means in which we draw near to God. This is the means in which we resist the devil by confessing our sins and asking forgiveness of God. And what we have in 1 John 1, 9, I hope you know this truth, when we confess our sins, God is faithful to do what? To forgive us. Do you know that? Like I think sometimes we're afraid of, okay, if I forget, if I ask forgiveness, what's going to happen if we bring the sin to light? But guess what? God already knows it, Right? God knows what's in our heart. We're not bringing something to him and he's going, oh man, I didn't see that one. I'm really glad you brought that to my attention. Of course I'll forgive you. No, he already knows. So there doesn't need to be this idea, man, I don't know if I want to bring this to light. We ought to be comforted by the fact that God does know. and We ought to be comforted by the fact that he's already promised us in Christ that our sins are forgiven. He just simply calls us to come to him humbly confessing our sins, knowing that He will bring, or He will forgive. So, how do, we, how do we do that, though? He next brings us to the fact that we are to despise our sin. This is what James does in verse 9. We will begin to confess our sins when we despise our sins. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like, I don't see that on a coffee cup anywhere. Like, imagine that verse on a coffee cup. Yep. Ah, joy to gloom, you know, like that doesn't happen a lot. It probably should be because that's what we need more than some of the other sayings that are out there. So what's James saying? Is he is he calling us to be grumpy people? Is he saying, man, you guys should just be downers all the time. How are you doing? My life is terrible. Like, is that what he's calling us to be like? No. He's calling us to hate our sin. You see, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, laughter is a sign of a fool. Like like Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Or this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. He says, woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. He's talking about if you're laughing now, if you have this carefree attitude of sin, he's like there'll be mourning and weeping one day. But he's calling us weep over our sin now. James is calling us to hate our sin, to mourn over it. Now this is where our old our Old Testament prophets are very helpful. And sometimes I think we, we stay away from them because they're a little bit difficult to understand in the, in the sense their context is different than ours today. They're written a little bit differently in a different genre. But when we begin to understand, they're calling Israel, God's people, to hate their sin. This is what Joel says in chapter 2. He's calling God's people to confess their sin, to repent. So this is what he says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. He's saying, hate your sin. 1 Corinthians 5.2, this is what Paul says. He says, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let the one who has done this be removed from you. There's sin within the church. And the people are just apathetically turning their their heads to it, saying, oh, whatever, doesn't matter. He'll deal with it. Sin's an individual thing. And so they're not dealing with it. And so they're just acting in this carefree manner. And so Paul says, no, you ought to mourn over this. There's sin within the church. So let me ask you, do you hate your sin? This is, a, this is a tough one. And, and I, I'd i caution against any quick answering of this. Um, I mean, I, I've wrestled with this one, even like flying last night and, and the other day and just wrestling coming uh, to this verse and knowing, preaching it. Asking myself, man, do do I hate my sin? Now, there's times. I think I really do. But to be honest, I think there's a lot of times I don't necessarily hate my sin. When I become aware of of like a sin in my life, I I know it's wrong. I go, okay, I, I see in God's word that that's wrong. It doesn't honor God. I confess it. I ask forgiveness. But I don't know that I'm, I'm honestly mourning over it. I don't think I'm, I'm really wrestling with it. Um, that's something that, that even as I've studied this week, I'm going, I, I, want, I want to mourn over that more. I want, I want to despise sin. This is what um, one theologian said. It's kind of a, a big quote, so I put it up here. You can kind of follow along. This is out of a, a commentary. He said, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive, intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. And when you read, like, like, things from the Puritans, and they hated their sin. And they pour forth these poems and these writings, just loathing their sin out of their love and their desire for God to be glorified. And I began to think, man, the shadow has dimmed. That often we, we kind of say, well, it's, It's human. It's natural. What do you expect? Of course we sin. Hey, it's okay. Pat the person on the back. Don't worry about it. And while we ought to be comforted by God's forgiveness and His grace, there ought to be a hate towards that sin. Think about it. Why? Why don't we actually hate sin at times? I think One reason, we fail to think deeply about the offensiveness of our sin against the blazing purity of our Almighty God. I think we fail to think deeply about the offensiveness of our sin against the blazing purity of our Almighty God. In other words, let me just give you one word, apathy. I I think we just grow dull. Now think about it. How often are we grieved over anger, over lust, impatience? When I mean, you're driving on I5, someone cuts you off. Of course, we can just yell at them. You know every revival has ever occurred? Do you know why it occurs? Do you know do you know what the basis of that revival is? A renewed hatred against sin. Because that parallels a renewed love for the very glory of God. Now, now just think about it. why is this so important? How is it that that we can begin to think this way, that we can begin to thinking just the grievousness of our sin? We'll go back to chapter 4, verse 4. This is where we were last week. He says, you adulterous people. Now remember, they're fighting against one another. They're operating like the world. They're calling themselves Christians, but they're not acting like Christians. And so James says... You're not actually a friend with, with God. If you're a friend with the world, you're an enemy with God. And he says, you're an adulterous people. Now I think we all know what adultery is. Now just think about that. Think about the grievousness of that sin when, when a spouse commits adultery against another spouse. And how, how the one spouse who has it committed against is, is offended and grieved that their spouse would, would do such an act. And how we would, would pray that that person who's committed adultery would be grieved over their sin, would see the heinousness of it, and would be moved to repentance, to confession. And, and that's, what, that's what James is wanting us to see here. Is that when we sin against God, when we reject His authority... We're committing this adultery against him. We're committing this spiritual adultery where we're, we're saying that we're married with Christ and yet we're sleeping with whatever other idol it is that we want. I think it's as we begin to think the way God's word calls us to about sin and to see it in the light that God's Word gives it to us, then we begin to hate our sin. Until we actually see that God is glorious, and that He's beautiful, and that He's given us grace, and He loves us and adopts us, and He's perfect in every way. Until we see that, we don't understand how horrid our sin actually is. So that is what, what James is wanting us to see. And that as we draw near to God, he promises that He draws near to us. And so I, I encourage you to think through your sins, to examine them. But how? How do we even do that? How do we become more aware of our sins? How do we begin to grieve over them? How is it that we're going to have this view of God? How is it that we're going to behold the glory of God and it's that this glory, as we behold it, it's going to move us to our knees and we're going to go, I am wretched in my heart apart from the grace of God. I need God's grace. Well, I think that, that brings us right into verses 11 to 12, where we're going to see we need to read, study and obey God's word. We need to read, study and obey God's word. Look at verse 11. He says, "Do not speak against, He says, "Do not speak evil against one another, brothers? And remember, in chapter four, one and two, the church is fighting against one another. And so he seems to be picking up what he was talking about earlier in verses 1 and 2. And then he says in verse 11, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And so we're not going to get all into other parts of this, but James is not telling us not to judge our brothers. We are supposed to judge one another. He just called them adulterers, right? He clearly called them out on their sin. And when Jesus talks about it in, in Matthew chapter 7, I think it's Luke, I think it's Luke, Luke 7, Luke 6, ta- ta- taking the log out of our eye. He's not saying, don't judge your brothers. Examine your heart first. And so when, he, when we read the words, um, slander one another... The one who speaks against one another. That's one word in the Greek. And it means to attack or to defame and to slander. So the whole idea is if you're going to come against someone to destroy them, you should not do that. If that is our purpose, but rather our purpose ought to be how do we love them and encourage them? And yes, we might reveal sin and confront them, but all out of a desire to build and see them grow in their love for God. So, again, we're not getting all into that. It's a whole other sermon. that would be really great to do, but I think there's a deeper issue what James is getting at here. How we treat others is really a reflection of what's happening in our heart. That's what he wants us to see. After all, notice what happens in verse 11. He shifts from speaking about how we offended our brother to how we speak evil against the law and that we become judges of the law. In fact, at the end of verse 11, he says that we who judge the law have made ourselves judges. So what's James getting at? Well, the law refers to God's word. And already in chapter 2, he said that the the royal law, the summary of God's law, is that we would love one another. And so the church has rejected that. They're not loving one another. And so James is pointing out, when, when you disobey Scripture, when you disobey the commands of Scripture, you're rejecting the very rule of God. So think about it. when when a child disobeys their parents. As a parent you tell your child, go make your bed. No. What has the child just done at that moment? I don't need to obey your word. I'm not subject to your authority. I'll pick and choose the commands that I want to follow, right? That's what our kids are. Now, are they thinking through that sin at that moment? No. They're just like, I don't want to make my bed. But that's at the heart, at the very heart. There's a sin that's going, I I don't want to do what you said. Now, if you said, go eat ice cream, I'm pretty happy with that. Like, I'll pick and choose the commands. The ones I like, I'll do. The ones I don't like. The ones that are uncomfortable, I'm totally going to reject. So that's what James is saying we're doing. Okay, by not loving one another, you're rejecting the commands of Scripture. Now look at verse 12. Because he just said you're you're making yourself judges. And now he says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and destroy. So who is this lawgiver? Who is this judge? God. So he's saying, when you reject God's word, you make yourself a judge. But there's only one judge. Who ought to be judged? Do you see what he's doing here? He's setting it up. Well, who do you think should rule? Who do you think determines what's right and what's wrong? Is it you and all of your sovereignty and wisdom and your might? Hopefully not. Hopefully we all go, oh, that's probably not a best idea. Or is, it, or is it God, the one who has created all things and made all things in his perfect wisdom? Here's every time we disobey God's word, we're placing ourselves above God. That's what's happening here. Look here, James says, you're, you're to submit to God. And he tells us what this submission looks like. And then he ultimately shows us if we're going to grow in this desire to submit to God, in this understanding and our hatred of sin, it has to come right back to the Word. Which if you remember, all the way back in James chapter 1, James 1.22, probably the theme verse of the book, it says, But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The problem is so often we, we read God's word and we fold it up and we go about our day and we're like, oh, I'm a Christian, but we didn't actually look at it. We didn't actually read it to obey. And so James is saying, read the word, know the word. It's in God's word that you're going to understand his grace. Because if you want to know how is it that God gives grace, it's in his word. If you want to know what does it look like to submit to God in all of life, it's through his word. If you want to know how to resist Satan and draw near to God, it's through his word. If you want to know how to pursue holiness and grieve over your sins, it's through his word. This is why James tells us, don't just read, but, but hear, but, but obey. Study the word. In Paul, in Ephesians chapter six, do you remember what he said? The sword, the sword of the spirit is, is what? The word of God. It's through God's word that we reject sin, that we submit to God. The normal Christian life is submission to God through obedience to his word. So if we're going to experience this, this God gives more grace, how are we going to do that? Through God's word. He's given us his word that we would know who he is. His word is a means of grace to us. That as we read it, we would receive that grace. As we close it and we go about our day, his grace would be with us, encouraging us, spurring us on in our Christian life. And so what James has done, he said, all right, if we're going to reject this worldly wisdom and live in heavenly wisdom, it's going to be through submission to God. And ultimately, how do we do that? It's going to be through his word. As we come to him through his word, we're going to know how to draw near to God and resist Satan. We're going to know how to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts to practice repentance. We're going to know how, how to grieve over sin. Why to grieve over our sin? And this submission is going to be something that we love to do. If you go back, the main point is that we would joyfully submit to the rule of God. And let me just give one reason why. I just want to give one reason why. We submit to God for the joy that is set before us. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, 10. This is where it says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Why? What's the rest of the verse? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Why? Because he will right there in verse 10 he will exalt you right so verse 10 humble yourselves before the lord continue to submit to god he will exalt you now just think about that just think about that in our sin we want to make much of ourselves in our sin we want to satisfy everything that we want we think we can do it too and, and if we don't get it we're going to fight over it because we we know what we want and we're going to do everything we can to clean it But what we understand through life and through God's word is that ultimately the things in this world don't satisfy our hearts, right? I mean, technology is such a beautiful picture of that. Like, the new iPhone comes out, and we all want it because we need it, and then two years later, the next iPhone comes out, and we all need that one, and the old one we give to our kids, and they can do whatever they want with it, right? That's like, summarizes everything in this world. It's great, it satisfies for a moment, but give it a little bit of time, and soon we give it to our kids that they can suck on it and throw it across the room, right? Like, that's, that's what happens. And yet, here when we come into the Bible, God is calling us to himself through the grace of his son Jesus. He's saying, draw near to me. Resist the things of this world. I will satisfy your heart more than anything else. Whatever lust you have, whatever, whatever desire you have, the grace that God gives our surpasses that and doesn't just satisfy for a moment but satisfies for all of eternity here james is saying god will exalt you he will bring you into his presence forever that you will enjoy and bask in his presence experiencing his joy for all of eternity being made perfect in his presence you know first john i think it's three two says that one day when christ returns we will see him as he is why because we will be made perfect like him. Do you realize that God holds nothing back from us? He's saying, Submit to me. This submission, while it's a four letter word in our culture, it's a three letter word that boasts of the very glory of God in God's Word. It is all about joy, about having an eternal, lasting joy. And where do we find this joy at? Where do we understand? That Christ truly satisfies us. Where do we understand that things of this world, as good as they are, cannot ultimately satisfy us? Where do we find that? In God's word. And so I, the way that I'd want to end this is parents, what what you need most and what your children need most from you is for you to grow in your knowledge of God's word. As you grow in the word. Teach the word to your to your children to your children. What your marriage needs more than anything is husbands and wives for each of you to dig deep into God's word and to encourage one another in that word. Children, what, what you need more than anything else is to spend time in the word of God, growing in the knowledge of words, reading the word, memorizing the word. And we read why? Well, for our joy for our joy of seeing God, for our joy of knowing God, for our joy of living as God calls us to. So what I want to do now as we close, um, the team's going to come up and and they're going to sing a song. And I think the words are going to be on the screen so you can follow along if you want. But one thing we've talked about is the fact that we often don't examine our hearts. And, And take just time to do it because... Obviously, it takes intentionality, right? Like we actually got to sit down and examine our lives, and sometimes we just get in the busyness of it all. And so what I just want to encourage us to do is just take a few moments, just examine. Look back at your day. Look back at your morning. Maybe there's plenty of things to examine that happened already today. Or, Or this last week, just examine your life and just pray. God, are there things that I need to be confessing? And think about grieving over. Think about why these sins are offensive. So I just want us to take a few moments to practice that. And as we do that, the team is going to to be playing. And then after that, we're going to go right into communion. Uh, So let me pray as, as we start this period of time. Father.